0: Voyager, season four. We have encountered the Borg, Elizabeth, Lindsay, and Will. Continue the theological discourse with the elder quadrant. Resistance is futile.
1: Irrelevant. Your appeal to my humanity is pointless. I can't be sure, but I think there's more going on here than just a simple hello. Well, oh, I think it's time we get back to our bridge.
0: No argument there.
2: Voyager
0: Season 4. Welcome to Voyager A Theological Journey, affectionately known as Voyager, and we're now in Season 4.
2: Yes, Season 4, Episode 3, which is called The Day of Honour. Uh, the Klingon holiday known as the Day of Honour comes around again, and this year Belana Torres decides to embrace her Klingon heritage and participate in it's series of ritual endurance tests. But blood pie and pain sticks are the last thing on her mind when an emergency necessitates ejecting Voyager's warp core. Taurus and Tom Paris are sent in a shuttlecraft to retrieve it, uh, but the needy Katati aliens, judging Voyager's generosity a bit short, um, uh, commandeer the core and destroy the shuttle. Paris and Torres. Don EV suits and beam off just in time only to find themselves adrift in space with oxygen running out, accepting her impending death. Balana voices her true opinion of Tom. Oh, dear. And
1: that's where the trouble starts. You can't have a deathless declaration of love over a nice romantic dinner or a sail on a lake in a holographic thing. No. We've got to be out in space, about to die of oxygen deprivation. I just thought, you know, that's really pushing it.
0: it, it I mean, it's interesting because the whole uh, the whole wrestle through this episode is about um, Balana's inability to actually be honest with herself, and and you know, Tom regularly uh, throughout this episode but I think in previous episodes too it is the one sort of pushing her to uh, to declare herself or to you know open up or whatever and uh, and in this episode uh, as you say Elizabeth it, it takes death to um, pry open <laughs> Balana's uh, shell and and allow her feelings to come out and I for one i liked it i thought i thought it was a, a nice episode and i was really pleased that they finally got to that step of of uh, declaring their feelings
1: yes as all of us declare our feelings in such near-death experiences well,
0: i was going to say
2: this is how you know uh the, the the depth of romantic interaction occurs you know when when we we're faced with the final moments of life we reevaluate uh, who we are and what we believe, and we, we try to say all of the things that are left unsaid uh, just in case we die and we never get to say them at all. Um, it it, um, it certainly is a trope that's done to death, um, and one of those um, tropes I think that, that um, just really harms romantic writing in science fiction, whether we're talking about Doctor Who or Star Wars or The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, that... The, This seems to be that sci-fi writers are incapable of coming up with um, anything deeper um, or or any deeper expression of romantic feeling or intimacy um, when they're writing.
1: No, and it was so intimate, given they're both out in space in great bubble-headed spacesuits, you know, and Mm. I was so touched not. You know why they're sort of kind of clanging their bubble heads together, trying to get closer. You know, <laughs> come on, sci-fi writers, you can do better than that.
0: See, for me, I actually like that. Like, that's that's part of the the pathos of the whole thing is that they want to be able to connect, but they've they've got these suits in the way, and and I think that for me added a, a level of, of intimacy that that in a sense, you know, their their emotions allow them to to go beyond the the suits that keep them apart, and to go beyond the the shell of of, uh, of you know self protection that has been keeping them apart as well.
1: I suppose there is certain irony there. Yes.
2: <laughs> there is no greater love than to share one's final oxygen supplies with the person you care about the most. Uh, is of course just such a touching moment. You know, uh, I'll give you some of mine. Oh, I don't have enough either. Looks like we're both going to die. Um, yeah, it. it uh, it, it it just it took me right back to uh, Han Solo and Princess Leia. I love you. I know, um, as he's being dragged off to be frozen in carbonite and handed over to Jabba the Hutt. We we um we I think it's low hanging fruit. Um and and I would very much like to see. I I understand Lindsay that 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 you know this is part of the the genre of Star uh, of um of science fiction. But I I, I just. I would love to see some uh, greater level of authenticity and depth in the establishment of romantic and and intimate relationships. Um, And, and, I mean, I I guess I'll just keep waiting. I'll keep hoping that perhaps one day um, the writers will find a way to to connect uh,
0: in ways with greater depth. I think you're being a bit hard.
1: Yeah, I think (laughs) you're
0: being a bit hard.
1: <laughs> no, he's not. I think he's being spot on the money and I thought they were on track actually with the captain and um, Chicota <laughs> you know when they were marooned. but even now the way they've interacted and not interacted and backed off and come closer, I felt that was much more realistic and the time frame was much more realistic than the Balana and Tom thing.
2: So here we are now longing for the days of hot tubs, monkeys, and stories about my mother you know like we're, well, the bar is so low now that we're actually saying, oh well, look that was that was romance on the planet with the with the hot tubs and the monkeys, but um well, you know, back, back then we weren't as happy with it because uh, so we've now got a new low, yeah I
0: thought I thought the hot tubs it. and monkeys were much more trophy to be honest and 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 I'd say I think <laughs> well, you're being a bit hard because while this particular um episode and and its trigger for uh balana in particular to actually declare her feelings um you know is a bit tropey the the truth is that in the episodes that we've seen and in the episodes to come tom and balana do have a, a very i think relatable um kind of um Uh, relationship you know where they fly off the handle at one another and and, you know have fights and say well if that's the way you're going to be you're going to live alone and and I think to myself I, I can remember that kind of interaction with my wife you know at various times where we've We've flown off the handle and said things that we don't mean and, you know, gone over the top and, and, and the, the prickliness and uh, then the, the tenderness and the unexpected times and the laughter. I I, I really like this relationship. It, it rings true for me. And the fact that it, it sort of, you know, comes to this particular step of culmination in space. Hey, we're watching sci-fi after all. Uh- I don't
2: mind that, Lindsay, but but uh, you can't tell me that you know that it's realistic that uh, um, you know the imminent threat of our own mortality and some oxygen deprivation is the best way for us to actually reconcile those differences. I mean, and and, and I think I don't mind the. I thought there was some good realism in their relationship turbulence, but but I I mean it, it's once again that dxx machina kind of thing you know that they they're actually able to resolve those issues so maybe next time I get into a fierce argument with somebody I love I should uh, work out how we can both be threatened by imminent death so we can actually make up and be friends again
1: (laughs) hold your breath until you turn blue perhaps yes that's my problem I've got no problem with the relationship Lindsay and and the realism of the blow-ups and the arguments and stuff like that it was actually, you know, the the deathless promises of love as you face death that I thought was, I don't know, over the top, I suppose. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it have been better if they could have resolved it the way normal people do, normal people on
2: spaceships do? And let's face it, we do make our best decisions when deprived of oxygen. I mean, you know. <laughs> absolutely we do. You know, absolutely.
1: she could have been psychotic by that stage and it's absolutely hallucinating. Did she actually mean it? I suppose we'll find out.
0: Ah, you're both cynics without a romantic bone in your bodies. We are.
2: <laughs> the thing I did like about this this storyline that we've got here with the Day of Honor um, is is the way that it deals with rites of passage, um, and and so rites of passage have this significant, um, uh, I guess, role when we're we're about to cross a threshold. So, so I mean, there are ex- examinations of self and who we are and and how we connect to the people around us during these times where, you know, we might be about to die or we've just been born or we're getting married. or And, and I love um, that this Day of Honour Rite of Passage has, has occurred before um, in the Star Trek universe. We've we, we watched Worf go through his Day of Honour with his uh, pain sticks and his friends gather around him to support him because he has no other Klingons. So, I mean, cultural rites of passage are... are are extraordinarily important for us in terms of understanding our place in the universe and our journey through it. And yet um, in our Western society today, we we appear to have dismantled most of them and they, they kind of aren't there anymore.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think rites of passage are really important and I think we're losing them in Western society in many ways or we're replacing them with very shallow types, you know, tropes of rites of passage though I have to say I was really disappointed by this Klingon rite of passage. I thought it was trite and superficial. Pain sticks, are you serious? You get hit with pain sticks? Is that the best the writers can do? There wasn't anything about sitting in solitude or wrestling with yourself or following some intricate puzzle. Yes, I know they're violent, but pain sticks, come on. And that blood pie was a pile of mashed pumpkin or some such. It just looked... Utterly unconvincing.
2: There is no greater way, though, for a Klingon to self-reflect than to tuck into a sanctified Targ's heart after being hit by multiple pain sticks wielded by your closest friends. I mean, this this, this is the way it is for the Klingon Empire. It's the way to glory and honour and understanding self.
1: Well, no wonder they ended up having to make a truce with everybody (laughs) if that was the case. Because if that's the best they could trot up, I mean... I was wanting something much more significant for a rite of passage. But uh, I found that being hit with pain sticks and eating some identified plate of pumpkin and another identified dried looking thing is just not cutting the mustard. I'm very sorry. It just didn't work for me.
0: I think it's, I mean, it's worth noting that the, the, the Day of Honour is a, an annual commemoration. So it's not a rite of passage in the same way as, you know, a, an a, an entry into adulthood or, or um, you know, a marriage or something like that. It's, it's something that is done on a, on a regular uh, basis once a year, a bit like Yom Kippur like or something Day, like yeah. that. Yeah. Like <laughs> Valentine's Day, yeah. Um, but, but the thing that, that I, I, I found really interesting in this is... Um, that uh, Balana is not sure she even wants to bother doing this so I I found it really interesting as a reflection of someone with a, a mixed heritage or um, perhaps it might be similar for uh, someone who's a second generation migrant or something um, you know that sort of sense of connecting to your roots but not being sure whether you want to or whether in fact that they're something that you've rejected um, and and in some parts I actually felt a little like Tom was pushing uh, Balana and, and I think it's great that he's supportive but I wondered sometimes whether he'd actually overstepped the mark in sort of pushing her into something that perhaps, uh, you know, would be interesting to him because he's not of that culture, but, oh. but uh, not giving yeah. her the, the ability to make her own choice.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, Lindsay. I thought he was getting really pushy about it. Mind you, she probably needs pushing in some areas because she is hiding behind things. And obviously um, pain sticks aren't going to do the trick. We need the near-death experience to actually crack that shell. Mm. Right, yeah. yeah. They were on the right so, track,
2: though. I mean, pain sticks. You know, maybe, maybe if uh, sticks. if uh, if Tom had have persevered a bit more with the pain sticks, they might he might have got his "I love you" a bit earlier. So, so maybe oh.
0: maybe it was all pain Tom's sticks. Tom's you know uh, clever plot. He he knew that she actually needed you know the, the threat <laughs> of death, and so he arranged oh. it all. <laughs> yeah, let's go out in
1: the up. She does develop her own way of doing on a day by punching the dude in the nose and blacking his eye. So I thought, you know, that worked out quite well. But I really found that scene where she comes in and there's this Klingon warrior there. And when he starts outlining what happens, I thought, are you serious? As I'm watching a cartoon. Yes. It's just a caricature. Really, they could have done that much better.
0: Yep. yep. The thing I found unbelievable there was actually Belana's response. Because, I mean... Balana is not someone who sort of hangs back or, you know, is lily-livered or doesn't know what to say. And and so I, I just found it really incredible that she kind of becomes almost, you know, tentative and not sure how to respond and whatever. I mean, I think, you know, the real Balana would have been much more likely to just, you know, bot the guy or something like that if she didn't like the, with a the stick. thing. Yeah, with a paint stick, rather than all thing. this sort of, you know, tentative stuff. You know, that just didn't seem like B'Elanna to me.
1: She got, well, I she think got it there. was trying to de- develop a side of her we yeah. hadn't seen. You know, that's what I felt.
2: And it is easy for the writers to decide to accentuate the Klingon side of her, her angry monster and her temper and all of those kind of things, but actually forget mm-hmm. the human side. And I, I, I think that they made that mistake with the character of Deanna Troy in, in Star Trek, who was also half Betazoid, um, but there was very little examination of her her human side or what it means for her to be human because of the the, the extreme dominance of the, the more obvious Betazoid tendencies. And I, I wonder whether or not that's something that we, we do in terms of um, people uh, of, of mixed heritage um, in our own society, where, you know... Uh, a person is born with particular physical traits or um, particular cultural understandings, and so they become the, the, the entirety of what defines them as a person rather than actually um, them being allowed to be able to explore the balance of who they are across across multiple cultures.
1: I think that's right, and I think that Balana's hesitancy in that human side, I felt anyway, was being contrasted with seven of Nine. Um, because we see in this episode more of her human side start to come out, Mm. where she does a random act of kindness. And she said some things that really got me thinking about the Borg um, in a way that I'd not thought before. So I did wonder if that was deliberate. It could have been accidental. But I wondered if that was deliberate on the part of the writers. So you've got this defensive, angry Mm. Balana, whose hesitancy and insecurity is finally being betrayed and then you've got we are borg starting to sound like i can make an individual decision that is an act of kindness that will help everyone here
2: yeah and Um, you get that interesting interaction between the two of them where Mm. melana is expecting remorse from seven from what has happened and 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 um seven doesn't deny it or even attempt she doesn't actually even recognize like can't even it doesn't compute it doesn't you know what, 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 what would be the point of that? How would it actually help, or, or, or be be something that's effective? It doesn't even occur to her that remorse is something that actually should be a part of of her her response uh, to
0: the Katari. She she's she's out out vulcaning Tuvok, You know, I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that line "guilt is irrelevant" just sounds so Vulcan, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> irrelevant.
1: The thing that struck me the most about what she said is when Janeway has got asking questions clearly with the idea that she might have caused the accident. um, What struck me is when she said, when you're a collective, when you're the Borg, you cannot be duplicitous. Mm. You've got, you know, another million Borg listening in on you. And basically, as it were, there's no room to actually lie. There's no room to actually be deceptive. You just can't Mm -hmm. when you're a collective because they're all in tune with each other. And if you try, they'd all know within nanoseconds. And I thought that's really interesting because I've been thinking of the Borg as this particularly loathsome kind of species. And then I thought they're probably the most, the brutal, but most honest species that we've yet encountered in terms of how they actually function. So I like the insights that Seven is providing for me at least about some of the finer aspects of Borg, I don't know if it's culture, but how they actually operate in their universe, which I'm finding quite fascinating. And not that we're
2: known for being overly political, but maybe that's what Scott Morrison was trying to do when he uh, attempted to uh, form a collective of himself in a cabinet during last year.
0: Um, but, uh um, my my favourite yeah. meme, I have to say, was the one of, uh, you know, Da Vinci's Last Supper and all of the disciples of Scott Morrison. <laughs>
1: and I like the one where he was um, at, what was it? I, it was an Ikea meme about him building his own cabinet.
0: Yeah. And that's all
2: just... of himself. Yeah. I'm just really glad that it's come to an end because as a minister, I wouldn't have liked him to try to take over my portfolio. So, like, look, we, we've had our little moment of politics there, but but I I think you're right, um, Elizabeth. That, that there is something quite quite attractive about the Borg uh, in relation to their ability to be to be one, to be connected, uh, to be known and to know um, one another. And and um, I, I couldn't help but think about this this um, dream that's cast for us in um, in in. Um, in Corinthians about the mirror darkly about being known as we know um, and, and the Borg kind of have that in a way that we, we, we can, we can't possibly imagine.
1: Well, it's that Acts Greek word that's used. um, It's usually translated of one accord. It's homothumidon and it means to be of one mind. Mm. And the Borg are homothumadon as the apostles were on the day of Pentecost. They'd been praying and they were of one mind or of one accord.
2: Wow, Pentecost is an assimilation of collective, collective thought. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. for that, we we well, are it, it. It actually is.
1: If if you read it, it's one of the two Greek words my congregation know. They don't know that one. and metanoia is the other one.
2: Resistance is futile. We are the, Home the of way. Themidon. We are we are the, <laughs> we are we are the way. Uh, you're, well, it's you're not just... the
1: way. It's you're... we are of one mind.
2: Your spiritual and uh, and distinctiveness will be <laughs> now servicing
0: us. Um. Oh, very good. Now, just anyway, um, it's
1: interesting to, to think of
0: that. Well, it is interesting, and actually, uh, I mean, it's fascinating how over the period um, of uh, Star Trek and even into more modern uh, uh, series. We look at the Borg from so many different angles, and, and I think they have quite a different flavor in different incarnations and series, you know, and in, in some, they're very much a force of nature, something you can't really understand, all you can do is get out of the way, and and then in others, they're very much this sort of hive mind, you know, with with that there's no thinking there's no sentience and then um later they uh bring in the idea of a borg queen i guess drawing on the insect kind of thing and and that then brings a a sense of, of personality and then you know the the various borg including seven but there are others who we find who are no longer part of the collective they they each give us a little a little chink into you know what it could be to be like borg and it makes me wonder you know like do we really know what it's like to be borg i mean we've got all these different flavours of of thing but we don't and and it it makes me think about you know how we we think about other human beings and we immediately think that we understand what it is to be that person but actually we're only getting sort of outside views from different angles rather than really knowing what's going on inside
1: mm. yeah yes yeah, you've got to be bored to actually literally read someone's mind and know what's going on but even before seven becomes humanized i mean she went in her initial dealings with the deal with janeway she's showing sentience uh, being she is of the collective but she has her own personality i felt That's the first time I've ever thought of the Borg as being distinctive in some way, even though they're collective, they've kind of got their own attributes Mm -hmm. and they're being developed more now. She's becoming more human and she's thinking that through and watching that journey for me is really very interesting. And I think they've done a good job, the writers, with, with Seven. And, and they do talk
0: that. about how that's unusual don't they they like Janeway says yes. you've done this once before with Lakutas of borg it's not their normal way of being
2: yeah yep yeah. and they and they they haven't attempted as the writers often do to do it all in one episode and to yeah. actually have it done they've learnt have learned from listening to us in the future that they need to actually start taking <laughs> taking things out and spreading them out and doing some more foreshadowing and doing some more connecting. And, and so, so we're actually getting this slow release um, information about Seven of Nine and the Borg um, and the way that that's actually operating as well, which I, I think is really good. And, and it does show an evolution or a shift in the way that science fiction writing not just in Star Trek, but was happening across the board in this, in this late 90s period, um, as we're seeing a, a shift um, to be more in line with the kind of writing that we saw in, um, in, um, in, de- in Babylon 5 um, earlier on. So that's exciting. I also had to wonder um, if you can ever possibly absorb someone else's distinctiveness and not be changed by it. Um, And so looking at the Borg and their move towards using facets or assimilating facets of individuality like Locutus and Seven and then the Queen, um, perhaps these things are actually not occurring randomly, but because they're actually um, absorbing this individuality focus that actually shows them that there is some benefit to having um, greater specialisation within different parts um, and leadership that actually perhaps is, is not so interconnected.
1: Well, that's true because they are constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, their minds are always going to be interconnected um, unless you are, um, like Seven was, your distance from the rest of them, um, you know, by being in a, another place or whipped off by another spaceship. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a probable evolution, if you like, if you keep, absorbing individual of species that see themselves as a collective of individuals rather than a hive it, it would impact you somehow
0: I think the interesting thing to think about is like uh, when when you assimilate with one other person you know in a marriage or something like that um, the the person or or you join a, a, a small you know type group like a, a congregation or something like that uh, there's a, a very a large yeah. or a cult yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a very large impact um, because there's there's so much brought to bear, you know, in that assimilation, that it's one-to-one in, a, in a, a partnership or whatever. Um, whereas for, for the board, because they are all interconnected, if you absorb a million, you know, whatever they are, Qatari or whatever, that's going to have very little impact on the whole mass of board who are all interconnected uh, so you have to have lots and lots of um, mm. uh, stuff feeding in to actually make a significant change, um, given given the way that they're all all um, one like that. So yeah, I think they definitely do evolve, but it's probably a slower evolution than might happen uh, mm. in other species.
2: Like a small Perhaps. drop in the ocean.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but,
1: yeah. But but that small drop in the ocean, like they wanted to absorb the species we encountered last time, the, you know, the ones that were...
0: 8472.
1: I can't remember. 8472. And their assumption was they would absorb their superior technological skills immediately. Now, if you can absorb the superior technological skills immediately, why not absorb the other stuff immediately? Mm -hmm. So I don't think you can have your cake and eat it too here. I think that if it's possible to assimilate something that you've all got straight away, it's possible to assimilate individuality in the same way if that's what that race is like. I don't know about 8472, but certainly they've absorbed a lot of humans and a lot of humanoids, so... I have no problem with that.
2: Certainly we saw this in the Star Trek Next Generation episode called I Borg, where Hugh um, became um, a, an individual and was taught to be an individual by Geordie LaForge and, and Data. And then they released Hugh back into the collective like a virus, which began to spread through the collective and forced the collective to to cut off the cubes that had been infected by this individuality virus. Um, so, so we, we, we kind of get a glimpse at the mechanism by which this occurs, that, that, that even though it might seem instantaneous, that even the fastest of networks actually have, have, a, have a, a, a I guess, a progression through um, the system that, that will actually cause it like an infection. And so the Borg were able to operate fast enough to cut some of those off. Um, so so we, that was a fascinating um, couple of episodes where we had... Hugh and then the the, the Borg individualist rebellion uh, that actually came under law um, and uh, Data's brother. So we, we had this kind of really interesting insight into how some of the inner workings of the Borg networking works from that as well.
1: And there's probably a difference between sending one individual back into them to gradually infect them, inverted commas, than actually assimilating a million Of a race that you've just happened across, and you you think, "Oh well, yes, we'd like what they've got, and we'll absorb them all." Um, Mm. I would have think that would be a faster effect than just having one planted, who then infects two, who then infect five, who then infect ten, kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know what his R (laughs) naught was.
0: Now, (laughs) can I um, raise a a totally different uh, issue? that um uh, i found um challenging in this uh episode and that is the katati so we've been talking about i don't know which is the a plot oh, or the yes. b plot but um uh you know the, the the other plot is these um you know uh refugees from the borg uh mm-hmm. who are asking for yeah. help from voyager um and uh, uh at at first you know they ask for help they're given help and they they go away grateful. But then they come back again and again, asking for more and and challenging Voyager, you know, saying, um, well, from where I'm standing, you know, we're starving and you've given us some, but you're all still really well fed and have all your machines Mm -hmm. and whatever, Um, you know, don't you care about about us, you know, dying and suffering. Uh, And I found it really challenging, I have to say, and particularly, I think maybe as a minister, I've sometimes been in situations where I've had particular people who come and ask for help and come and ask for help and come and ask for help time and time again. And there's something within me that, that, that wants to rebel and say, you know, pull, pull yourself together, get your act together, stop coming and asking me for help. Um, and then I'm challenged, you know, and think about what Jesus says. So how, how did you respond to the katati?
1: I thought they were needy and nasty. Um, <laughs> you know, I was fine with them the first time around with the masking. And I get what Janeway's saying. We can't give you everything because otherwise we'll starve and we can't run the ship and we can't help anybody else. And I think that's reasonable in the circumstances. But um, the Qatari dude seems to want them to absolutely bankrupt themselves completely and utterly And it seems to me that they're a necessitous black hole that you could just never give them enough. You know, if you gave them everything, they'd want the ship next. Um, And I felt that that was probably not a good picture of beggars, you know, not a good picture of needy people necessarily. It is challenging too, I think. But um, I'm not sure that Janeway's in a position to just hand over everything like they demand at the end. And they're being really manipulative and really ugly when they say, we've got your core and we're going to blow you to smithereens if you don't give us everything we want, you know. Yes, maybe they're desperate, but I would have thought their negotiating skills could do with a bit of a spit and polish. <laughs> well,
2: it's quite possibly that the best of the Katari have been assimilated by the Borg. So these people are not necessarily the best and brightest of the Katari either. That, that, that um, you know, that there is a sense in which, um when we when we i guess read in our our own texts um about those who have been taken into exile and 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 the infighting and the squabbling and 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 i guess they're coming with a a sense of entitlement that actually says you know we deserve to 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 have these things um because of the crisis that's hit them so they they may I would read from it that they were probably a reasonably affluent and entitled society before this yeah. occurred, and that they actually then um, uh, were, were seeking to, to 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 gain what they needed, still holding that position of entitlement. Um, and and so that's 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 cr- affected them the way they are.
1: No wonder nobody wants them. When she says, "Why don't you land on a planet?" And he said, "Nobody wants us." And I thought, I'm not surprised because they'd expect everyone there to be handing over all their crops and their houses and their weapons and everything they've got.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I look, I hear that. And, and and the the part of me that wanted to, you know, rebel when people come back asking for help time and time again agrees, but I'm still challenged to say, you know, on what basis do we draw the line? Like at, if, if we're actually um, coming out of a tradition where a, our founder told us, you know, someone takes your cloak, give them another cloak. And, uh, you know, the kind of um, understanding that, that Jesus portrayed, where do we draw the line? Now, I, I agree, you know, you want to say I'm going to draw the line here because I don't want my family or my crew to starve or whatever. But, but where do you draw the line and why? And and how do we ethically uh, say, uh, I'm going to give this much to, you know, uh, starving children in Africa, but no more. Um, you know, it's yeah. important for my family to have extra clothes or to go to private schools or to, you know, whatever it might be. It's mm. it's a really difficult, ethical line to draw, I think.
2: It comes a lot closer to home, too, especially um, for the church these days, as we, we have churches that are actually in A greater level of desperation um, clinging on to their their silos and their property and their tradition and their history and when two churches reach uh, i guess a a a a certain level of desperation they may decide to come together and have a conversation about what it might be like for them to amalgamate or join together Um, but it's amazing the assumptions that get made when this happens that, that that one group will try to say well how are we strong enough to be the ones who will will take over the other? Or uh, like that, that that there always seems to be a need for humility in any kind of reconciliation mm. and exchange. Um, and the the Qatari didn't didn't seem to have it. Um, no. I also though in favour of the Qatari. I, I kind of swing the other way. And at what point do we expect someone who has been oppressed or victimized to actually reach a point of forgiveness of those who have actually oppressed or victimized them as well. And I think that this episode walks a very murky line with that, because I think we might be encouraged in this to actually say, oh, well, the Qatari um, should forgive the Borg, um, and that they're being a bit harsh on um, Seven of Nine, and that they certainly can't surrender seven of nine to them so that the Qatari can have their way with revenge or whatever else they wanted to do um, to them for their own gratification. Um, so there, there's this, this really fascinating, very murky grey area here that, that, that asks that same where do we draw the line question about, um, you know, we do say things like it's for the benefit of the victim to reach a point of reconciled forgiveness. But, but can we really ask people who have been um, treated um, so appallingly to, to, to reach a point where they, they will forgive somebody who's done something terrible to them?
1: Well, I don't think victims have to forgive their abusers. I don't, and I've never thought that. And I've met a number of victims who were so badly abused for so long that to ask that is an actual form of an abuse in itself. Mm. I have no problem with a Gatadi not forgiving the Borg. What I did have a problem with is when they wanted to blame one lone part Borg for everything and, handed her, and wanted her handed over to torture her in effect mm. and do horrible things to her. I have a real problem with that. Mm. I think that just showed a really nasty, nasty side of them. I'm not asking them to forgive them, but you, know, you don't have to take a defenseless, almost humanized part Borg person and torture them so you can live out your revenge fantasies. I thought that was really ugly.
2: So are we saying that it is um, inappropriate for one being to to take on the entire torture and damage <laughs> and load of the sin of an entire race? Um, that, that that's actually... an an unfair request to actually um force yes yes we are saying that
1: i see where you're going will and i'm saying yes the whole idea of this blood atonement sacrifice to appease god stuff of jesus has never really appealed to me i have to say and i think there's other ways of understanding the crucifixion other than that though i know that is a popular way of seeing things but Um, And she was willing to go, like Mm -hmm. said Jesus. She said, I will go, and that will fix the problem, and maybe they'll let you go if I just surrender myself. Mm -hmm. And she's completely okay with that, which I thought showed immense courage. It might be part of her makeup as part of the Borg bit, but, you know, I thought for them to demand it, though, was just unreasonable in the same way I thought it was unreasonable. We have the high priest reported in the Gospel of John saying, it's better one man die than the whole nation be destroyed.
0: I think, um, I mean, I, I agree it was unreasonable and I agree with your characterisation of the Katati as, you know, not very nice um, as, as they're revealed through the episode. But uh, I'm, I'm again challenged that, you know, I think there's a part of those of us who are privileged would like those who, who are oppressed or needy to be uh, appropriately in their place to yes they can ask us for help and then when we give them the help they're meant to be nicely grateful and say that's wonderful thank you so much and then crawl off back into their place and stop bothering us and and the reality is when you've been oppressed and when you are living on the bones of your bum and you're facing starvation or whatever you are not going to live into that kind of uh you know uh, preferred outcome for the privileged and and nor should you be expected to um you know and I, I i just think it's it's easy when you've got when you're voyager and you've got it all uh to be to be annoyed at the people who don't have it all bothering you
1: i think the context is important here because voyager is a self-contained unit it doesn't have a home base that it can just fly off and support you know, restock at supplies or anything like that. And they're not particularly religious. Some of them are, but most of them aren't, as far as I can tell. Um, and I think we're in a different context. However, having said that, I agree with you about us in the church. And I think one of the differences of this episode and for me is I would happily share what I've got as an equaliser with people who are poor. But to do that well, you've got to strain, change the structures that oppress. We need to actually change the way our society is structured and things like the capitalistic, you know, let us it's all about making a profit and exploiting resources. All of that has to change. I would happily live in a small little hut thing, maybe a bit bigger than a tiny house, I would, and, and happily share half or whatever it is I've got with people and we'd all live in little tiny houses and be equal. That kind of thing would not bother me, but it won't work unless we change all the structures. And in the meantime, the best I can do is give money and stuff to charities that work with really poor people to give them pride and dignity, to educate them, to teach them skills, to have their own employment, not just have handouts, to stop supporting places that exploit workers and have kids in bonded slavery, you know? That's a really big deal for me as I sit in this house that possesses me because I've got too much stuff and I never know what to do with it. You know, if I could do some good with it, I would be happy to share it. But it just seems to me that we need to change the structures of our society to do that in a way where it's really meaningful and really does create equity, not just equality. But Voyager in its self contained little climate where it's a society in and of itself can't change its structures it's not possible for it to change the structures of the Qatari either. All it can do is give a handout to the best of its capacity. So that's how I see the two as being slightly different, even though there is a lesson here, I think.
2: Mm. Oh, it's very complex. And, and I think that's where uh, I think we have to be very careful to to acknowledge the complexity of the of the situation and to be able to, to to use our, our our brains to actually work through the context and and sometimes when we when when we as Christians take uh, such a high view of biblical um, uh, interpretations of things we can actually find ourselves needing to overlook the paradoxes because at the same time as actually wanting to challenge structures that oppress um, you know to 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 care for widow and orphan and to to shift the balance of power and be countercultural we also have texts in this same Bible, in this same collection of, of, of works that actually say, slaves should obey their masters. Um, we, sh- we have these texts that actually um, also firmly entrench the position of our structures, um, and, and, and suggest that, that, that people shouldn't attempt to actually overthrow the systems of power. And, and so we've got to work out under what context the different things are being said and, and not, not blindly follow or make use of text to clobber minority groups. Um, and, and also ask the question of how is my privilege interpreting the way I'm, I'm accepting and receiving and listening to some texts and actually ignoring and overlooking others?
0: Uh, the other thing that I thought was uh quite interesting about this whole thread is the um the way it's resolved um which um you know we we've talked about uh seven of nine uh, first offering to go as a sacrifice if that you know lets the Katati um uh feel good about having her and and uh, let the others go but then she comes up with the idea of creating. Uh, this thing that can create as much thorium as they need that that she has from the blueprints they assimilated from this race Mm -hmm. in the past Um, and uh, it it did strike me as being very similar to some of the arguments we've had about climate change and how you know all we need to do is invent some scientific thing which will then you know get rid of all the scarcity and everyone can have as much uh, you know, fuel or, or power or whatever as they want without it having any cost. Um, and and it was interesting that, that that that's the way of resolving it. It's not anything about actually uh, uh, thinking about those structures or how could how could um, groups of people best share to enable the Katati to build up their own uh capacities and so forth it's uh let's let's come up with the technological marvel which will solve everything uh in one and you know it's like Mm -hmm. it's the new carbon sequestration isn't it
1: yeah it is and i thought that um it was just a a quick way of resolving the problem at the end of the episode which star trek is very good at doing um because it is still slightly episodic even though we're getting some character development and other things happening And to come back to your point, Will, about, you know, we've got to obey, slaves obey your master. I mean, you're right when you say we have to take that into context. But one thing I found very interesting in my studies at UTC, um, I think I was in my third year at that point when they still had one, two and three years. Um, And I did a study of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And I looked at the epistles in particular and I found that there were dozens of examples in the genuine Pauline epistles, the earlier ones, particularly, where the Spirit occurred multiple times and it talked about the work of the Spirit. By the time you get to the pastorals, it's hardly there. Mm. You know, you barely get a mention. And a lot of the mentions of the Spirit in the pastorals are about how the Spirit really preserves the institution. Mm. So there's been this real evolutionary shift from this wild untamed thing that comes and people prophesize or talk in languages or, you know, Mm. are hurled to go and meet Ethiopians or whatever it is, you know, out into the wilderness to this thing that regulates the kind of hierarchy of the church. And I think that the more you institutionalize something like the church, the more it will reflect the society it's in. It stops being edgy. It stops being the critique that Jesus was and wanting to challenge those undressed structures. And it just inserts and assimilates itself into the society around it, kind of like the Borg in a way, except a bit in reverse, but that's what it does. And you can see this really traced chronologically through the, Mm. the documents we have in the New Testament. And I didn't know that until I'd done this essay and I was fascinated by that. Um,
2: and yeah. I think unless you're actually prepared to dismantle those structures and systems, then yes. they'll perpetuate themselves. Like, I don't trust Raman of the Qatari to actually make use of this new technology to empower himself and return and restore himself to his privilege. He could use this new device to create an entirely new commercial caste system amongst the Qatari where he distributes yeah. the uh, the energy resources at a profit for himself Um, that that while ever the systems are actually not being challenged in this way and privilege is not being, um, you know, reflected on and questioned, we we will actually um, uh, self replicate um, those systems and create new processes of of oppression, regardless of of who we give it to. Um, Sometimes slave uprisings have actually uh, resulted in the worst forms of oppression straight afterwards.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think I, it's it's a challenge, and it's a, nation, a national and worldwide
0: one. Uh, national, worldwide, and also the Christian church, you know. And I, I was fascinated yeah. by what you were saying, Elizabeth, um, in reflecting on uh, the Uniting Church and our foundational document, The Basis of Union, which, um, you know, people often will point to as an example of a theological work, which is very uh, and beautifully Christological, um, but really lacks um, much reference to the, the spirit and, and to that um, uh, wild unfetteredness that you talked about. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, ha- how do we as a church um, lean into that, that prophetic, that um, uh, revolutionary, that um, wild and unfettered sort of side of things rather than just um, perpetuating the institution?
1: It's a really good question, um, really good question. And at the moment, I'm on a task group of the Assembly. I don't, are you still on Assembly, Lindsay? You work, I work them, for, I you work for the I work for the Assembly.
0: <laughs>
1: That's right. I was thinking Assembly Standing Committee. It was from the, I think, 2018 or 19 Assembly. I forget which year it was on, um, um, the one in Melbourne. Um, and it was to formulate an apology for LGBTQI people. And, you know, it's, I'm on it and it's proving quite problematic in some ways because not only the way that LGBTQI people themselves might view the intent of the Uniting Church in doing that, but also by the way it's being handled because I personally believe and I'm crossing my fingers that the Secretary of the Assembly does not listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> it seems to me that there's a real fear there about what our conservative arm are going to say, you know? And I feel I don't really give a shit what they're going to say.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. again. That's fantastic. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: I just don't feel we can be governed by fear. And I don't mm-hmm. think we can be governed by conservatism. I and mean, by that, I don't just mean religious, but I mean mm-hmm. social conservatism and fear of having a discussion or a rupture or an argument within ourselves. Yeah. that should not be stopping us
2: no and given given that i'm um, broadcasting from victoria i need to say at this point that views of the uh, ministers involved in this podcast may not necessarily be views of the, the uniting church as a whole um i mean we do we are governed by regulatory fear that actually tells us what, yeah. what that locks things away Rather than having structures that are keys to f- set us free, and uh, my good friend and friend of the podcast Kelly Skilton says that a, a lot as we're talking um, about um, about this, um, you know, that we really need to be set f- setting setting things free, like you say, in this free wild, free. untamed, dangerous Holy Spirit kind of perspective. But not just in the church. I mean, I'm listening to the current discussion about having a voice to Parliament for our First Nations people, and it's being Increasingly used with this caveat that says regarding issues that affect First Nations people, um, because there's a fear that if they leave the referendum open to that, that that the Australian public might say, oh, they might have the power to actually make decisions that affect us in the same way that we've made so many decisions that have adversely affected them in the last exactly. Few years. So, so so there's this there is this uh, uh, fear-driven um, uh, understanding um, that, that locks us away rather than actually allows us to be free to explore what the possibilities might be. Yeah,
1: I, I, I agree, actually, the, Will.
0: The, the other dynamic uh, that, that's there, and it actually, I think, reflects in this episode, too, is that um, in, in looking at that um, apology to LGBTIQA plus people, what does an apology mean if you haven't changed the things that hurt people? And I mean, this is this yeah. is part of what's going on, yeah. you know, in the whole does seven apologize for the Borg or can she apologize for the Borg, apologize uh, for the Borg. given, given exactly. that, that she she doesn't have the capacity to change them. And, you know, what what does an apology from the church mean if we haven't acknowledged wrong and changed what is wrong and how do we apologize to uh lgb people if we still have not as a church definitively said um you know there is nothing wrong with being gay or lesbian if um, until we actually made that comment it it to me mm. um you know falls very much into the scott morrison kind of apology you know i'm sorry if you are offended but I did nothing wrong,
2: especially no, when we know don't that want it, to do that, especially no. when we know that abusers actually use apology as a tool to actually yes. reset relationships so they can continue abuse. Um, and so apology can become a weapon to, to actually, um, be, be ready to, to further abuse. Um, and, and so you're right, unless the apology changes the structure, then the structure will only require another apology to create another false sense of security, so that further abuse can actually occur. And 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 uh, yeah, I, I think that that we really need to address those bigger issues before we actually can can work through. And especially if we're afraid to make any kind of statement because of what some of us might say or think, then we actually have to do some serious introspective and reflective work to say, well, actually. Who are we then, and what do we stand for? And and how far will we go um, to do to do to do justice uh, to be an ally?
1: Well, I feel that I'm particularly hard hearted, I have to say, about some of our evangelical um, friends in the Uniting Church. And if they want to throw a big hissy fit about this and say we're not apologising, it's a sin, rah rah rah. I am happy to put in the wording of the official apology. The Uniting Church, excepting for the ACC and that floating synod or whatever it is down in South Australia and half of Queensland, apologises for. I'm happy to actually name the ones in it that don't want to do it. If that's what you want, good. We'll name you there and we'll have that sit there and we'll actually try and say something of meaning and back it up with some actions.
2: But we're afraid that they might break away and become a new diocese of the United <laughs> Church. Um,
1: okay. they can as far as I'm concerned, good riddance. If you're gonna be that unforgiving and unloving, go away. And no, you're not getting the property. And we all know that's the only reason you're staying anyway.
2: Once again, I'd like to say that the views expressed by ministers <laughs> in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United Church in Australia.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so sick of it because it's when the Archbishop um, with this latest Gatcon rubbish, um, the former Archbishop of um, the Sydney Diocese got up and said, you have forced this into uh, this uh, this position and I'm their bullshit. <laughs> that is what abusers do. They make themselves correct. a victim. You forced me to do that. No one forced you to do it. You just don't want to live with people who don't agree with you. And that's mm. the honest statement. And yep. I say to the ACT, ACC, if you don't want to live with us because you don't agree with us, then there's a door. Out you go.
2: Uh, once again, views expressed by the United Not necessarily the views of the Uniting Church in Australia. <laughs> I'm retiring
1: soon. <laughs> <Church. laughs> I don't think
0: It I almost to start, makes uh, me a, want... a press a button, aren't I not <laughs> uh, yeah that's right. that's right. It almost makes me want to go back to talking about Tom and Ballada. <laughs> <laughs> well, the safe it's true. topics. What
1: happened to the what, what happened to the wild untamed spirit? What happened to taking risks? Our basis of union says that we will acknowledge medical science, that we will look at what society's saying, mm. we will look at what our scientists, etc., saying. Yeah. The statement to the nation, Lindsay, that's where the structures are dismantled. In the statement to the nation, where it says we're going to challenge people and uh, on, on structures that oppress the poor, and that we're going to uphold people who are getting a raw deal, and we're going to do things about the environment and climate change, because I think the Statement to the Nation actually puts those bones, those that um, praxis into the basis of union. And what makes us unique as a uniting church is that that we have that capacity, and some of us are doing it, of living into that mm. and being that. And if people want to hold that back, they're in the wrong church. Mm. Yep. other churches go and be a Baptist, go and be a hand-waving Pentecostal, Just go and be it. Stop sitting there saying your tiny minority that makes a significant amount of noise should dictate to everyone else what should happen and who they should be. Bugger off.
2: And there are lots of expressions of of the more conservative side of faith and, and religious practice. Yes. Um, in our society here in Australia um, but but there aren't really any any completely unique um, and and unrestrained um, ideas for, for what it might mean to think progressively to think outside yes. and the uniting church I think is probably the closest to that that we actually have and 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 I think that there is a fairly large portion of Australian society that is very interested in getting involved in having these kinds of conversations. And if you're if you're one of those people and you've come across this podcast by by accident, um, then um, I I um would very much like to hear from you in the uh, Never Odd or Ne even Facebook page, and uh, can can direct you to a number of different podcasts where these kinds of um uh, theological discussions are actually taking place uh, in our Australian context, um, because I, when I do, I mean, you go filter through podcast lists, you do discover that you could listen to. 20, 30, 40, 50 different podcasts of, uh, of, of uh, conservative um, understandings um, of atonement and, and, and all of those things. But, but there are very few um, examples of, um, of, of this kind of conversation. Um, and I, I, I feel sad sometimes that the Uniting Church is restrained. Um, I look forward to sharing this on the uh, Assembly Circles. Uh, <laughs> uh, social media so,
1: Don't you dare.
2: We can broaden our conversation. And if there are any members of Assembly who would like to be a part of the conversation, we would welcome you uh, to come onto the podcast and talk through some of the issues with us. But you'd have to watch an episode of Star Trek first. Uh, that's the only caveat so that we would have a context with which to talk about with our sacred text um, Voyager.
1: Do um, I mean, I think that there are individual uniting churches out there that really are trying to mm-hmm. do something about this. And, you know, Lynn Hatfield-Dodds, who's the convener of the task group, the Apology Task Group, she came in on Zoom because she had COVID, she couldn't come in person, but she came into our Rainbow Christian Alliance, you know, and it was really good. It was a very open, honest conversation mm-hmm. where she asked, what would you like to see in an apology? And it was quite interesting, the broad range of answers that we got. And she asked some, one of our young transgender um, men if uh, she could quote him, um, because she felt what was said was so powerful. And, you know, I felt really proud that we had this group of people in all their individuality and gloriousness and beauty. And, you know, who was who sitting there talking and saying what they were and proud of who they were. and. You know, I just want to see a lot more of that. Mm. Amen. And we're expecting Elliot too to come and talk to us.
2: Yeah, well, certainly it would be would be great to have Elliot in that conversation. And and uh, and so Elliot's my my son who's transgender. Um, he mm. is uh, speaking in in so many places. I couldn't be prouder. Uh, that the other week he was actually invited to go and speak to. Uh, the medical pro- professionals at the Royal Children's Hospital um, to give them an understanding of the patient's perspective um, from a transgender uh, perspective um, and and so there is I guess a real importance and significance in listening um, yes. and 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 that, that comes from, from all sides that you can't make an effective apology if you haven't listened to what's exactly.
1: been said. Exactly, well part of our brief is to consult widely and talk to as many people and Uh, almost all the letters of the rainbow alphabet are present in our rainbow congregation. So it's rather a unique group in the uniting church in some ways that there's so many people there that fit that bill. And it's quite a lot of transgender people in it, um, a surprising number actually. So, and there's one about Elliot's age. And as I said, um, she is transgendering to he at this moment. She's just got approval for her hormones and everything else. So, you know, she, it's he now, um, it's with a new name and, you know, it's very exciting. So I think seeing someone like Elliot, who's actually made that journey much further along the way for someone like our young friend, that will be really affirming. Mm, And that's what we want. Yeah.
0: And just circling back to the uh, episode, and I, I think picking up that, that sense of, of the good things that, that happen, one of the things I was a bit uh, disappointed in was there's a great um, speech from Seven of Nine where she says, I'm finding it difficult challenge to integrate into this group. It's full of complex social structures that are unfamiliar to me. Sounds like a church. Um, compared with the Borg, yep. this crew is inefficient and contentious, but is capable of surprising acts of compassion. Um, and, uh, oh, that sounds like a church. It does, it does, yeah. <laughs> but but the thing that like I, I, I thought was um, a shame was that, in a sense, this episode doesn't highlight that unexpected acts of compassion in the way that a, a different episode might have. Um, here, you know, mm-hmm. they're approached by people in need, uh, who ask for help and they give them some help and then there's, as we've already discussed, this sort of uh, running you know, battle about how much help can we give and how much do they want and so forth. Uh, and I, I just think there, there are other episodes where they have genuinely gone out of their way sacrificially to do something for someone um, uh, unexpectedly as an act of kindness and it would have been nice to have actually uh save that line of sevens for an episode where you had that genuinely surprising oh wow they did that you know um because i think it's such a good line and i think in a sense it was kind of wasted in this episode um where it wasn't highlighted as it could have been
1: i thought she was referring to what tom had said to her i might be wrong in that that's just the impression I got. She was thinking of that, where he said, we've all done things in the past that may not be part of us now or we're not happy about, and I'm here if you want to talk to me. I, I thought she was taking that as an act of mm-hmm. some sort of act as compassion. But that's how I read it, Lindsay. But you're probably right, something greater. But I felt that they did give needy nasty aliens quite a bit you know they got a whole lot then they gave them a whole lot more and then basically he wanted the ship gutted and everything handed over which i thought was getting beyond the pale
2: i wondered too with that exchange between tom and balana whether this was a rebound relationship for tom whether he was actually going you know if you need anything he's just had a fight with balana and they're in the chorus, if you need anything you know, he, maybe, maybe tom's going oh well <laughs> Maybe I can actually move from one emotionally inaccessible partner to another emotionally inaccessible partner and, uh, and, uh, and go from there. So, but, but I did not feel that. over <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that is probably a good place for us to bring the episode to a close. Um, I didn't want to end today without giving a, a shout-out to our good friend Ensign Vorick, who we get to see again in this episode. It's so good to be able to have these kind of liminal edge conversations um, um, cast members who are reappearing rather than just knowing that there are 120 odd other members out there who are faceless and we never see. It's nice that they're actually re casting and, uh, and it was great to see Vorik in action in the engineering department um, breaking the warp core. So yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I thought he was doing so well. Not.
0: look i have to say that i i I know that you guys didn't like it but my quotes of the week come from you know tom and balana floating in space i i thought i thought you know where balana says let me access your controls and he says i thought you'd never ask (laughs) and then (laughs) later when when uh, he says, "Why is it we have to get beamed into space in environmental suits before I can initiate first contact procedures?" and she responds, "Why is it that whenever we're alone for thirty seconds, you start thinking about contact procedures?" <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah,
1: th- Look, I agree. I- that was okay. That was all right. <laughs> I'm longing
2: for a for an alternate universe, an alternate universe where Tom does become uh, in a relationship with Seven of Nine. Uh, <laughs> and that Vorek finally gets to realise his passions for mm. um for uh, for Balana and you know they can they can double date and live happily ever after. Um, we just need somebody for Harry um, oh, and uh, everyone can Harry. live happily ever after. Because yes. after all, it's all about forming, uh, partnering up
0: relationships in a heterosexual model. Um, well, course. the Delaney
1: sisters may be still available. Harry could look at one of them, I guess.
0: <laughs> uh, look, Harry, Harry Harry might set his, his, his uh, cap for uh, seven of nine and that will be an interesting interesting um, uh, connection. (laughs) I will say no more. Well, that's already... (laughs) His
1: conversation with it has been an absolute disaster. So I suppose you've seen a lot. Being a borg, I mean, God,
2: it was terrible.
0: It gets better. Until next time
2: on The Love Boat,
1: uh, sorry, uh, Voyager,
0: uh, I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen.
1: And I'm the heretic, Elizabeth Rain.
2: (laughs) views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States.